From the studios of KPCW in Park City, this is Cool Science Radio. It's science and technology that's accessible and entertaining. And if we can understand it, so will you. I'm Lynn Ware Peak. And I'm John Wells. First this morning, we speak with best-selling science writer David Quammen. He's really one of the most engaging writers of our time. His new book is called Breathless, The Scientific Race to Defeat a Deadly Virus. And then NYU professor Michael Meadow Webster, who has some good news about the Earth for a change. But we humans do have some work to do before we can create what he writes in his book, The Rescue Effect, The Key to Saving Life on Earth. Stay tuned to find out how we can positively rescue, maybe rescue, the planet. Our guest is science journalist and author David Quammen, who has just finished his 17th book. He hails from Bozeman, Montana, but frequents the globe doing research for the kind of science stories that make for fascinating tales. However, he got through 2020 on one tank of gas, barely leaving his home during the two years that followed the onset of COVID. Instead, he convened with just under 100 scientists from around the world, asking all the big questions about COVID. The product of that is his new book, Breathless, The Scientific Race to Defeat a Deadly Virus. David Quammen, welcome back to Cool Science Radio. Thank you, Lynn. Thank you, John. Great to be back with you both back in this space where science is cool. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, we think it's cool. We love talking to you. And, uh, you know, first off, so you talk to 95 or so scientists from literally around the globe. And in the credits, you give a little insight into who these scientists are. Were there any conversations after which you couldn't sleep at night because you just thought, wow, you know, whatever the scientist story was, it really stuck with you and raised lots more questions for you. Well, yes. And there were some scientists that I went back to. They agreed with me after we finished maybe an hour and a half uh, Zooming that that this was just a beginning um, and uh, uh, that we wanted to wanted to pursue the conversation further. For instance, there's a scientist in in Brazil, a doctor and a disease researcher named Carlos Morel. Uh, And I had a wonderful conversation with him. He has studied this virus. It it rampaged through Brazil, excuse me, but it also rampaged through Carlos. Uh, And he was on a vent, not exactly a ventilator. He was on uh, a, a mask, sort of active respiratory aid for more than a week, the doctors were wringing their hands saying that, telling his wife, it doesn't look good. Mm. So he barely survived. He told me that whole story and we just kept talking. He had more to say, more insights, more personal experiences. Likewise, a scientist named Peter Piot, a very famous disease scientist who was one of the people who investigated the very first Ebola outbreak in 1976 in Zaire. He also had a bad case in London um and uh, was hospitalized i believe on a ventilator for a period of time so these people um who had great scientific knowledge of the virus but also had immediate personal experience of the disease were part of what i was looking for i decided as you said that i would interview first i thought 60 or 70 of the world's leading virologists it ended up being 95 and ask them about their work, their views of the virus, but also their lives during the pandemic. And so from people like like Marion Koopmans in the Netherlands and Carlos Morel and Tony Fauci and a long list of others, I got the personal element as well as the scientific element. And that's that's what I was after. That's what I patched the story together with. Lucky for you that you were at home, very isolated in this lovely little library that we're looking at now. But it, you had some great socialization, you know? Many people were just isolated. Oh, absolutely. Had- absolutely. And it's a strange thing about Zoom. I always, in the past in my scientific career, my principle was always go there, go there. If you're interested in you know, gorillas in the Congo, go there. If you're interested in the Komodo dragon, go to Komodo. In this case, I realized from the beginning, I'm not going to be able to go there except by Zoom. And I discovered that although there's a lot to be said for the face-to-face interview when you 
go in and sit with somebody in his or her office and you see their books and you see the the art that their grandchildren have made and and, and you see the Gary Larson cartoons on their on their office door you're learning things about them but also there's something to be said for going in by Zoom because it's very private, it's very intimate. So when I Zoomed, for instance, with George Gao, the head of the China CDC, after an hour and a half, it was it was a very casual, relaxed conversation. That's not to say that he was spilling his guts to me, but it was a more relaxed conversation than if I had gone through all the protocols and put on a suit and and walked into his office and passed the assistant's assistant and his assistant and the security people. And then he closed the, the door and there was he was in there with this writer. It was much more relaxed and much more private than that. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we're speaking with David Quammen, who's just written Breathless, The Scientific Race to Defeat a Deadly Virus. About 50 years ago, we had 3.8 billion people. Today, 7.9 billion. In the next 50 years, we'll nudge above 10 billion. Any one of those people could get anywhere in the world in less than 15 hours. We're almost asking for trouble, aren't we? Yes, absolutely. You're right, John. This 8 billion population of, of large mammals is unprecedented in the history of planet Earth. We know from the fossil record that there has never been a single species of large-bodied animal anywhere near as abundant as we are now. We live in a world full of viruses. There are viruses in all the other creatures, all the other cellular creatures. Virus is, of course, not a cell. It's a, it's a parasite, a genetic parasite of, of cellular creatures. So all the animals, plants, fungi, bacteria, all of those creatures have their own viruses. The ones that infect mammals are capable in some cases, in many cases, of infecting us too because we are a mammal. And so with our abundance and our connectivity, we are this great, uh, I won't call us a Petri dish, uh, we'll call it maybe, maybe a pile of dried slash, a pile of dried tinder that requires only a spark in the form of a spillover of a virus into one person, maybe turning into an outbreak among a cluster of people, requires only that to trigger a pandemic, a global event like this, a virus that is so successful in Darwinian terms because it has figured out how to infect humans and transmit from human to human that it can spread around the world and and achieve the the Darwinian success that this this one has this is one of the world's most successful viruses right now when that spillover finally takes place that person could be infected could not feel ill possibly not ill yet but they get on an airplane and they land in O'Hare and That's if right. it's if they're breathing, if they're sneezing, if they're if they're moving around, I mean, all of those people at O'Hare are going to a thousand, five thousand different spots in the world. So the whole thing takes off pretty quickly. That's right. That's right. As I said, as I said before, you know, a virus, a virus can't walk, it can't run, it can't swim, it can't fly, it rides. But a good virus, a successful virus, rides really well, and it rides airplanes really well. Mm-hmm. Um, SARS-1 in 2003 rode airplanes really well. Came out of a hotel in Hong- came out of southern China, got to a hotel in Hong Kong. People checked out of the hotel, went home from their vacations, took the virus to Toronto and Beijing, and uh, 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 let's see, uh, Saigon, as I recall, and Bangkok, and and it spread. But fortunately. For us in 2003, that virus, the original SARS-1 virus, was not capable of transmission from asymptomatic people. And I said in my book in 2012, my book Spillover, uh, it would really have been a nightmare, and it may be a nightmare, when there's a virus that's like SARS in terms of its capacity to infect um, and kill, but unlike the original SARS, is capable of transmission from asymptomatic people, silent spreaders. And that's exactly what we got in this one. And that is one of the main reasons, as everybody knows by now, this one has been so bad. David, since you live in Montana, I can give you this metaphor. It seems to me that people who live in Montana and are up and up close to uh, grizzlies from time to time have less fear of them. They know how to handle it. So the closer you are to something, the more you know about it, you can make better judgments about it. You you have, you know, as I said, less fear. 
Is it the same at all? And I'm thinking that it's not because the more you interviewed people and the more you knew about COVID, you know, you were someone who stayed in a room for two years and you escaped it for two and a half years. So until now, yeah, until now, and we're talking to you while you have COVID, which is a little ironic, but yeah, most of us have not escaped it. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I agree with your conclusion, Lynn. Um, the more you know about these things, the less the less spooky they are, the more respectful you are, the more cautious you can be, the more rational you can be in your precautions. I'll take exception a little bit to the first half because um, I think one of the problems with, with people who, who visit Montana, visit Yellowstone, whatever, is that they're not scared enough of grizzly bears. Mm-hmm. They don't know enough about grizzly bears to be adequately scared. And so they go walking up to him and say, well, let's get a picture of the kid with the grizzly bear. You know, go move a little closer. Those of us who, who know those animals and respect them are terrified of them. <laughs> and, and, and if we walk in the woods, we walk with bear spray. Anyway, the point is uh, about viruses. Yes, when I started covering this subject 20 years ago, things like Ebola were very, very, terrifying and spooky to me. Now, I still have a towering respect for Ebola and these other really ghastly viruses, but they're not spooky anymore. I understand them in terms of ecology and evolutionary biology. I I understand the Darwinian imperatives by which they operate. And I understand that they're they're not preternatural creatures. They require certain circumstances in order to transmit from one human to another. So you take precautions, you, you, you be judicious. I'm not, I'm not brave enough to be one of the, the real, you know, disease detectives who goes out there with the, the, you know, the full PPE and, and climbs into the cave and, and captures the bats and draws the blood and cultures the virus in the lab. But I have spent a lot of time standing three feet behind those people wearing my own protection and, and keeping my hands behind my back so that they won't hand me either a bat or a needle if I can help it. Hmm. Maybe the term rationality is what you can apply to both grizzlies and COVID. It's just kind of a rational knowledge. Hey, I wanted to ask you about, since you're talking about bats, and we know that bats were possibly the origin, but you spoke to someone, I think quite a few times, is it Ali Chan, uh, who is an outspoken proponent of the lab leak hypothesis. And so I'm wondering... How often was were there contradicting stories from this top 96 scientists? Yeah, well, uh, you're talking about Alina Chan. She's a scientist in Boston, um, a molecular biologist. And she has published a book co-authored by a friend of mine, Matt Ridley, a, a, a wonderful, respected science writer in Britain. And they argue the probability of the lab leak hypothesis. And I stand on the opposite end of the teeter-totter. Uh, as I describe in the book, I, I entertain these these views and their arguments with respect, but I am entirely unpersuaded unpers- uh, or 99% unpersuaded that that happened. But, um, but I made a point. Uh, it wasn't accidental that I spoke with Alina Chan. I spoke with her because I knew that she was a lab leak proponent and I wanted to hear her out. And I spoke with a scientist named Jesse Bloom because he had been vocal, a very highly respected molecular virologist named Jesse Bloom, because he had been vocal and saying, we need to investigate this more. Others that I talked to, I I chose because they represented that side of the origins question. I think of it as the natural origins school of thought versus the nefarious origins school of thought. And I wanted to hear out the people the best of them, the most civil and rational of them, because some of them are not those things. And, and so they were included in, in this group of 95, which I call my Greek chorus. And what was Alina's, uh, what was the basis of her support for, uh, for her argument? Well, there, there were a couple of things. I would say um, the main, well, one of the main ones, not the only one, was that she and Matt Ridley were arguing, she argued in a scientific paper and then argued again in her book. Uh, I hope I'm doing justice to this. There was something very suspicious about the fact that this virus, SARS-CoV-2, seemed to be too well adapted to humans from the very beginning. 
for a, a natural virus that spilled over without manipulation in the lab accidentally. And so I looked into that. Is it too well adapted? Was it from the beginning too well adapted for humans to be an accidental spillover? And I lay out in the book um, a lot of counter evidence. For instance, from the very beginning, this virus affected, um, I think it was a Pekingese dog in Hong Kong, then a German shepherd in Hong Kong, and then some cats, some domestic cats here and there, and then some tigers in a zoo, and then some snow leopards in a zoo, killed the snow leopards and infected some gorillas. Again, having been passed to them by zookeepers, it started infecting mink on mink farms in the Netherlands and in Denmark, spread through the mink farms. Mink had to be culled. In the US, somehow it got into white-tailed deer. At this point, something like more than 40% of the white-tailed deer in Iowa are testing positive to COVID. Um, it threw off an important mutation early on, something called D614G, and it became clear thanks to the work of a scientist that I interviewed uh, in the book, for the book, um, that this particular mutation made the virus immediately more successful in humans. So there was this very dynamic process that suggested that this was an evolving virus. It was, it was learning, quote unquote, to become better adapted to humans as time went on. It was throwing off new variants. And at the same time, it, from the beginning, was enough of a generalist virus that it was infecting not just humans, but mammals of a, a number of different kinds. And so that was uh, that was in response to the to the rational uh, point of view that Alina Chan had on one of the things that made this virus to her suspicious. Yeah, it's just all fascinating. And going back to 2012 with spillover with just a uh, uncanny accuracy that you predicted all of these things. Did you get pulled into any of the conspiracy theories that that David Quammen was somehow knowing about this and involved in it? I mean, there's so many crazy theories out there, but did yeah, you get pulled in yourself? Yes. And you know where that happens, particularly, John, is on Twitter. Mm. Uh, Twitter is, a, is an important tool for scientists um, communicating with one another, putting out provisional ideas, explaining, creating threads that explain complicated things to the to the general Twitterverse, the audience on Twitter. Uh, but it's also a very, uh, it's, it's filled with a lot of other forms of, of, of discourse, not so civil discourse. Um, it's filled with a lot of trolling, a lot of accusations, a lot of conspiracy mongering, uh, a lot of um, fierce, maybe non-conspiratorial, questioning of the possibility of a lab leak. So so Twitter is just a great burbling stew pot of, of ideas on this. And I'm on Twitter. I was at one point called a stooge of the, the people who were responsible for a lab leak because I happen to know them for 15 years, have spent time in the field with them. And it was known that I was writing about this. So I have, I at a certain point fairly early on, I decided, well, I'm not going to fight this battle. I'm not going to argue this argument on Twitter. I'm going to have my own say, and it's going to be in the book. So I dialed back and and have not responded to every single accusation or provocation on Twitter or assertion that I might know to be misguided. I've I've let uh, you know I've, I've I've posted pictures of my dogs and my my Python on, on Twitter and, and communicated with people on a, on a slightly lighter level, not to say, not always <laughs> saying something serious as well, but I knew that I would have my say. I was fortunate. I was going to be publishing this book. And rather than doing anything in 140 or 280 characters, I would do it in, you know, 313 pages and be able to treat things within their contexts. Do you worry, David, that because we we read things on Twitter and attention span seems to be shrinking all the time that people just aren't going to pick up uh let's see how many pages your book is you know a 300 page book so you so that indeed you do have your last say I'm a great believer Lynn in the fact that there are a lot of people out there who still love books who love books like nothing there there are things that a book can do that nothing else can do now maybe most of the people on twitter are not going to read a 300 page book but a lot of people will and i've tried very hard 
to make this book not just scientifically accurate and and intellectually rigorous, but entertaining. God help me for trying to write an entertaining book about such a horrible catastrophe as COVID-19. But I believe that the way to reach people with understanding about science, among other things, is to, to make it a page turner, to tell them, to give them a sense from your voice and from the story you're unfolding at the end of every paragraph, at the end of every page, they, they hear your voice saying, trust me and turn the page. There's more of interest. There's more surprises. There's more humanity. There's more narrative. There's more drama and more enlightenment to come. So I think there are by far enough people out there who do love books to make it worth this kind of effort. That's heartening. I hope you're right. I hope I'm right too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, especially since it's how you put food on the table, right? (laughs) That's right, yep. Um, You know, I wanted to ask you about, you talk in the book about the concept of herd immunity. And in the beginning of the virus, especially among the groups of anti-vaxxers, they Mm -hmm. talked about herd immunity and how that's the only way to to really control the disease and it's not through vaccination or mask wearing or that sort of thing. But you say in the book that gave false hope and it doesn't really work. It's there's no permanent herd immunity. Why not? There's no permanent herd immunity for any population of people on this planet, any subpopulation, any nation, any grouping of people, there is only herd immunity possible for the human herd, those 7.9 billion of us that John mentioned. I trace the concept of herd immunity to its origins in agricultural literature of the early 20th century when scientists were talking about actual herds. If you have a herd of a thousand cows and a virus comes in, and it kills some of your cows, and it causes some of them to abort their calves, then the agricultural advisors at at that point in, in the 20th century had discovered that the best thing that you can do is continue to try and breed your cows and raise the calves among the ones who have survived and do not bring new cows into your herd. Keep your herd a closed population. If it falls to 600, then keep it. Just grow it from that that number because those will have acquired immunity or natural resistance. But if you bring in new cows, then they will be susceptible to the virus and the virus will continue to circulate. It will never die out in that population. So how does that apply to people? It was started to be uh, a concept in in human public health, uh, I think, in in the middle of the century, but it it assumes closed population. And if you have people traveling from one place to another, um, bringing um, their susceptibility, and in some cases, bringing the virus with them, then your virus will continue to flare, will continue to circulate, and there will be no immunity for the remaining susceptible people in that population. I say at the end of that section, um, herd, quote unquote, herd immunity is like the immunity that you have if you walk out onto a golf course during a lightning storm. Your immunity is that it will probably hit the other guy or a tree. But if it hits you, you're still dead. David, I wanted to ask you, uh, Ebola was contained, I believe, to three African countries. Is that correct? During the 2014 to 2016 big West African outbreak, it was focused on three countries, Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea. But it has appeared in Uganda. There's an outbreak of Ebola in Uganda right now. There have been a number of outbreaks in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. It's a Central African disease because it's a virus that lives in some sort of animal, a reservoir host in Central Africa and West Africa. And had it not killed its hosts, so quickly, could it have spread to this country? Well, it did. There was one case that was imported to this country. I think it was the first time ever that um, a person died of Ebola outside of the continent of Africa. A man came from Liberia, as I recall, uh, on a visit, and he was positive for Ebola, and he died um, in, I think it was Dallas. But Ebola is not transmitted so far as we know, and so far as it exists so far, uh, by the respiratory route. It's 
communicated by contact, direct contact with bodily fluids, blood, semen, uh, diarrhea. That's how Ebola is passed. And that makes it not nearly as dangerous to the globe, not nearly as transmissible as the respiratory viruses or the, or the airborne viruses that, for instance, measles is not mainly a respiratory virus, but it's an airborne virus. It flakes off the, the pustules that you get when you have measles and it, and it floats in the air, highly, highly transmissible. SARS-CoV-2, highly transmissible as we know. Ebola, regardless of the fact that it kills 60% of the, the people that it infects or, or, or maybe less, it is just not as transmissible. At what point are you going to want to abandon writing about COVID? Will you, or what is your next project? Well, I have another book that's appearing in May from National Geographic Books. That's a book all about conservation, about conservation models, the conservation of biological diversity in different places using different approaches around the world. That book will be called The Heartbeat of the Wild. I have a book about the evolutionary biology of cancer that I had begun when this pandemic broke out. And Simon and & Schuster, my publisher, asked me, would you please push the cancer as evolution book to the back of your desk and give us a book on the pandemic? So I was glad to do that. Felt like a duty more than an opportunity. Uh, but I will go back to that book. Right now, I'm writing about avian influenza and the dangers of avian influenza. So. I'm still, I still think science is cool, but I'm not just writing about SARS-CoV-2. Well, right. we will look forward to talking to you again when, and we'll talk about conservation. We'll talk about cancer and other topics that you're writing about. David Quammen is the author of Breathless, The Scientific Race to Defeat a Deadly Virus. It is on sale now. David, yes, thank is. you so much for joining us again on Cool Science Radio. Thank you, Lynn. Thank you, John. Thanks to your listeners. It's it's always fun and valuable to talk to you, too. Our next guest, Michael Meadow Webster, is a professor in the Department of Environmental Studies at NYU and an expert in ecology, conservation, and philanthropy. And he has some good news about the Earth for a change. He says, if we look at the world through a different lens, we might find that when it comes to the Earth's durability, there's actually a lot to be optimistic about. His new book is The Rescue Effect, The Key to Saving Life on Earth. Michael Meta Webster, welcome to Cool Science Radio. Great to have you. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's refreshing and new that there is something to be optimistic about. We know that there's a lot to be pessimistic about, but why the switch for you and, and why are you bringing this information? Sure. And listen, I want to begin by saying that there, there are real reasons to be concerned, and I'm not trying to diminish those. Uh, I think they're important, and I think we should pay attention to them. But I also think that it becomes demotivating working in conservation at a certain point if all we do is focus on the negatives. And so it doesn't require us to deny the things that we're worried about to, at the same time, take a look at nature and see actually how incredible nature is and how good it is at dealing with things like environmental change so to the point where you know most species on the planet right now seem to be adjusting to the changes we've created so far and i think that's really good news so how can we take that this adaptability or this malleability of species and and kind of look back because it seems like and i don't know the numbers but many species have become extinct I'm sure that, that someone like you could talk more about that. It, were we not applying the right rescue effects that that happened, or is it just part of evolution? Yeah, I mean, listen, if you look at since the you know dawn of life, far more species have gone extinct than there are present on the planet. But what people mostly worried about is worry about is what's happening right now. So like you, I was interested in these questions. So you know, I did a little digging as part of the research for my book and said, well, how bad has it gotten? You know, how much have we lost so far? And probably the best place to look for these data in the world is the IUCN's red list. So what they do is they compile an exhaustive global database on the species that we know that are under threat, as well as the species that have disappeared. You know, while we have lost some species on the planet, as a fraction of what's out there, it's actually really tiny. 
For example, there's known about 2 million species. Those are the ones that have been described by scientists. And so there's at least 2 million different forms of life on the planet. Of those, something, some tiny fraction of a percent are what we've known to have lost so far. It's really, really small. If we look at what we know to be somehow threatened, based on what the IUCN has compiled, which is not exhaustive and the number will grow over time, but at least for what they've documented, we're at about 2% of species on the planet are known to be at some heightened risk of disappearing. Now, that's a big number and we should be concerned about that, but you can also look at it the other way, which is over 90% of the species that we're aware of do not seem to be in any particular trouble at this point. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we are speaking with Michael Meta Webster, who has just written The Rescue Effect, Nature's Ability to Rescue Itself, Saving Life on Earth. And Michael, uh, several years ago, Lynn and I did a show on Cool Science Radio on the technological advancement during the Industrial Revolution in the UK. And coal was readily burned at that time to drive all the steam engines. And in less than 10 years, butterflies that were white had now predominantly turned black so that they could fit in with the darker soot-filled skies. And Lynn and I in high school were taught through uh, teachings of Darwin that evolution takes a long time, but that's not necessarily so, is it? No, it's not. And the example you're talking about is actually one that I studied when I studied evolution as an undergraduate as well. Um, listen, when we think about evolution of, say, you know, humans evolving from, you know, ape ancestors, it really does take a long time. But when environments begin to change quickly, evolution can happen almost instantaneously. All you really need for evolution to happen is if there's some disturbance, like a big storm or a drought. If you have a species and some individuals die because they don't have the best genes for dealing with that and other individuals survive because they do, evolution has happened in that instantaneous moment. And what we're seeing around the world is more and more instances where it looks like evolution is involved on timeframes of you know decades where organisms are evolving new capabilities to deal with their changing environment. So while a lot of evolution is in fact a long process, certain types of evolution can happen quite quickly. And lifespan has a lot to do with it. I mean, a, a, a fruit fly might live 24 hours, uh, so they have more of a chance versus humans, 70, 80, 90 years, uh, to be able to make those sort of changes. And it, I mean, how significant is lifespan? Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the ingredients. If something lives, you know, if you've got a tree species that lives for 500 years before it reproduces, um, that's not something that's going to evolve very quickly dealing with the kind of timeframes that we're, that we're dealing with for things like climate change. Um, and so the lifespan, you know, age to reproduction is going to be a key component to that. The other components are going to be something called, you know, um, genetic variance, which is a measure in any species or population of how much genetic diversity is there for traits that might prove uh, useful under changing conditions. If there's a lot of diversity in a population, evolution can happen faster because it can, you know, evolution can sort of find those combinations that work. Those can then survive and produce a next generation that looks different from the previous generation. Michael, just going back to what you were saying a moment ago about the IUCN red list. I just, for our listeners, want to, to, to go into that a little bit because I've heard of it before, but I had never actually looked at it. So it is IUCN, it stands for International Union for Conservation of Nature, and it's the red list of, of threatened species. So it's IUCNredlist.org if you're interested. It's a really interesting page. And I'm wondering, is this sort of the, the authority that all scientists trust and, and go to and, and refer to? I mean, I, I'm, I'm not sure that I know the answer to that question. What I can tell you is, as far as I'm aware, it's by far the most comprehensive source of information of its kind. And what you'll see when you look at that red list is there's something on the order of 40,000 species that have been listed there. That is a big number, and that's cause for concern. And those are the species that you could sort of say, for which at least as far as we know, Things like the rescue effect so far haven't shown themselves to be strong enough. Okay, interesting. So when we talk about the rescue effect, and we'll get into the six different rescue effects, how do you how do you define a rescue effect? So the way that I've defined this for my book is that the rescue effect is this inherent tendency in nature. 
when you imagine a group of organisms that are living in a certain place under certain conditions, when the conditions change, the rescue effect turns on and helps them adjust to that change. I think of it like a thermostat. You know, if you're in a room and the temperature is getting hotter, um, a thermostat can turn on and start the AC. That happens automatically in that case, and it changes the environment in that case in the room. The same thing happens for organisms. When they're faced with a change in their environmental condition, there's six different natural processes that may turn on in ways that help them to survive and persist. And Michael, you did uh, a tremendous amount of studying on coral reefs. How have the coral reefs in the, in the Caribbean evolved? Yeah, so coral reefs are my expertise. So I'm a marine biologist. I've worked on coral reefs for a long time, and I've also worked on coral conservation. And part of the, my impetus for writing this book was looking at coral systems and being really worried about the future of coral reefs and whether or not corals, that the corals are the organisms that build those ecosystems. You know, are we going to lose corals, particularly due to things like climate change, which are triggering something called coral bleaching, which is, you know, um, a problem on reefs and it's leading to lots of coral death. Uh, over the last few years, I've been working with a bunch of colleagues in science and conservation to really ask the question of, do we believe that corals are going to be able to adapt fast enough to the rates of environmental change? We have some idea of how much we expect temperatures to be increasing, for example. Should we expect corals to keep pace? And based on a lot of the modeling work we've done, we've come to sort of, I would say, a cautiously optimistic conclusion. If we can manage to bend the climate change curve a little bit so that it doesn't get quite so hot quite so fast, and we can do things like trying to protect corals in the places where they're found, our models predict that corals should be able to adapt to the changing environment. If we don't do those things, it gets a lot harder. There is some evidence that we've seen that already Corals today are better than corals of a few decades ago at dealing with higher temperatures, but we don't know for sure how much of that is due to two different aspects of the rescue effect. One is uh, phenotypic rescue and the other is evolutionary rescue. Well, that element of time is so important then. I mean, uh, as we look at technological advancement over periods of years, uh, the automobile took over from the horse, but it took 20 or 30 years to make that change. Had the time frame been a lot shorter, it could have been a little chaotic trying to make that change. It's 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 interesting how time plays uh, such a role in these types of things. And I know that's not that you know the advancement of technology is not the same as as these changes that you're talking about. But but uh, if the time frame is is longer, they'll have more of a chance to be able to adopt. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. That's really well put. And you can look at corals as an example. I once was, you know, chatting with one of the world's foremost experts on coral evolution, and I asked him, you know, prior to humans affecting the global climate, was there any place in the world's oceans that were just too hot for corals? And he thought about it for a minute, and he said, you know, no. They were able to, over time, adjust to the hottest temperatures the ocean could throw at them. It was the low temperatures that limited where corals could live. And so I have every reason to believe that corals are capable of living at significantly higher temperatures than they do today. The question is, will they have enough time to make that adjustment? And you're right that time is all important here. And that's one of the reasons why doing things like bending the, the greenhouse gas emissions curve is so important for life on Earth, because if we can do that, what we're doing is we're slowing down the rate of climate change, you know, in that period of time where presumably eventually we're going to get to a point where we can stop causing climate change. But even as we're in that process of slowing it down, we give a lot of life sort of some breathing room to catch up and adapt to the changes around them. We're speaking with Michael Meta Webster. His book is The Rescue Effect, The Key to Saving Life on Earth. And Michael, as you were talking about coral reefs, it reminded me of an interview that John and I did on Cool Science Radio, maybe last year sometime with a journalist, a science journalist, Julie Burwald, who had written about coral uh, global restoration projects for coral reefs. And it, it's funny, in all the interviews we've done, she also was full of hope and looking at, you know, it was mostly looking at the interplay of humans and the restoration project. So it's, it's not coral necessarily adapting, but it's the human 
um, contribution, positive contribution. And so I guess, you know, my question would be these rescue effects, how much are they adaptation and how much is, is the human element really figured in there? So it is both. The way I describe the rescue effect in the book is as this natural process. This is what nature is capable of, and it's pretty strong. But then there's a next level that says to the extent that we're worried about certain organisms, you know, I read about tigers in India or salmon in Alaska, um, to the extent that we're concerned about particular organisms and want to help them adjust to a changing environment, we can try and boost any of these processes. And so something like coral restoration, where you grow corals in a, you know, in a tank and you put them back out on the reef, what you can do when you do that is you can increase the population size of corals. That could be helping corals. Um, I think that kind of activity gets especially interesting once it's combined with efforts to actually put corals out now that may be able to do better at dealing with high temperatures than the corals that were there previously. So maybe you can breed um, high temperature tolerant corals and put them out into those systems. And essentially what you're trying to do there is you're trying to boost the evolution of corals in that system. Um, uh, we've done some modeling of that as well. And what we found is that at a certain level, if you put enough of them out there, you can start to, at least in the, the model predictions, you can start changing the evolution of corals over time and help them evolve faster. I'm wondering if human adaptability in this sort of metacognition is, is also part of the equation that without education, we may not adapt. Without awareness, we may not adapt. Without feeling like we're at this crucial point of maybe some hopelessness, we might not adapt. You know, where does that fit into your rescue effects? So, uh, you know, humans are an organism just like any other, but we're probably the most adaptable organism this planet has ever seen. And we're particularly good at changing the environment around us, structuring it such that we can survive in, you know, so many different places and access so many different places around the world that, you know, if we didn't have, you know, heat and water filters and modern agriculture, we simply wouldn't be able to do. So humans, if you if you break down the, the, the rescue effect into its components, are particularly good at um, uh, phenotypic rescue, which is essentially changing our behavior in ways that allow us to survive in wildly different habitats. Michael, I'm curious about this as it relates to uh, the coral reefs. Have most of the changes been uh, due to the rise in temperatures, are, are there are there also challenges with the acidification of the oceans? Because I'm told that there's a mighty race going on between warmer water and acidification. Looks like acidification. If, if something's going to kill the oceans, it could be acidification first. What do you think about that? Sure. So up until about you know the last ten or fifteen years, most of the problems on coral reefs were not related to climate yet. They were related to disease and pollution and overfishing and habitat destruction. Um, and that was causing plenty of problems for coral reefs. It has been in the last few decades that climate change, in my opinion, has really emerged as the biggest driver of threats on coral reefs. But right now, that's predominantly based on temperature that when the oceans get warmer than they've been in the past and they stay that way for longer periods of time, that's what's triggering some real challenges for corals today. Ocean acidification is when the CO2 that we're putting into the atmosphere dissolves into the ocean and makes it just a tiny bit more acidic. But tiny bit more acidic is really important for physiology. Like if our blood was made a tiny bit more acidic, we could die. Corals rely on ocean being a certain acidity for the chemical reaction that builds their skeletons. So corals make a calcium carbonate skeleton and the lower the, the, lower the acidity in the ocean or the more acidic the ocean, I should say, um, the harder it is for them to do that physiologically. So people are worried about coral reefs in a world where the oceans are getting more acidic over decades and centuries to come because it'll make it harder for corals to build reefs. And, and can you describe for us what phenotypic uh, rescue is? Sure. So every organism has a phenotype and its phenotype is what it looks like, how it behaves, what genes it's got turned on in its body at any given time. And every organism has an ability to shift some of those things as its environment changes. And um, when that happens, you know, when, when the environment changes significantly for an organism and it uses its ability to adjust its phenotype, 
I call that phenotypic rescue. And to give you an exa- a personal example of that, a few years ago, I went hiking in the Himalaya Mountains in India, much higher than I'd ever been before in my life. And I didn't have to do anything to tell my body this was happening. It started turning on all these systems automatically for changing the composition of my blood, changing my behavior in terms of how fast I was moving, you know, signaling for me to slow down and breathe deeply. Those are all things that my body was doing automatically. They were adjusting my phenotype to be able to survive in this newly stressful environment where I didn't have nearly as much oxygen as I was accustomed to. Wondering about the demographic rescue effect, and I'm trying to picture what that is and wondered if that corresponds to the story of the mountain pygmy possum in the snowy mountains of Southeast (laughs) Australia, or am am I mixing that up? Yeah, it's not as relevant to that one. Um, so demographic rescue is is when you've got, you can imagine, um, you know, a place where you've got a species spread across a broad geographic area and it's separated into different individual populations. So imagine a suite of islands and each island has a population of birds on it, for example. If there's a small island, that small island might um, uh, have a big storm or have uh, you know, a, a bad year for producing a certain food, and all those birds might die out or their numbers might get really low. If just a few birds fly from a nearby island, they can rescue that population. And that's demographic rescue. When you get immigrants into a small population that's declining, and those immigrants help uh, increase the population size going forward. Okay, so does that happen naturally or is there usually human intervention in some way or is it it just happens with immigration it happens all the time in nature because organisms are constantly moving around whether they're you know like a tiger walking from one nature park to another or a seed being blown in the wind there's this constant flux of organisms moving from one place to another. A lot of times they arrive in places that aren't suitable for them and they might not survive there, but sometimes they arrive in places where they'll do just fine and they can join the local population there and help bolster it. This is a very, very common pattern in nature. Michael, your book is very well researched. Uh, what, uh, What was the most interesting thing or most surprising thing in all of the research that you uh, have done as you prepared for this book? I think one of the most surprising things for me was when I really started digging into the numbers for how species are and aren't at risk on the planet, I found myself, I found what, you know, what I found there was sort of refreshing to me to realize that at this stage, you know, we talk a lot in conservation about sort of doom and gloom and how we're ruining everything and everything is coming to an end. Yet when we step back and we look at how life is doing as a whole, most species are currently adjusting to the changes that we have already created. And there's reason to believe they're going to continue adjusting going forward. And we're at this point where we the die has not been cast. We are not necessarily going to lose a large fraction of the diversity on the planet, but you know, it's really in our hands we get to decide what we're going to do going forward on things like climate, on things like helping individual species. If we choose to intervene, there's every reason to believe that we can bring most species through this period of really rapid environmental change. We had Neil deGrasse Tyson on a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about the uh, overview effect. You know, we've had about five or 600 astronauts that have gone into low orbit or gone to the moon. Not too many to the moon, but a lot of them in, in low orbit. And they have all described this overview effect as, as being a very inspiring when you can look down on the world and not see borders of the countries, when you see this fragile blue ribbon of an atmosphere. And it's had a profound effect on the way that they uh, view the planet. And and I agree, there's a lot of positive things out there. Uh, what else do you think we can do to get a larger group of people involved in this? Yeah, so I've worked in conservation for a long time. I've worked with a lot of nature lovers and donors, and I tend to find that the exclusive um, focus on the negative, on the threat, on you know the world is falling apart, can be demotivating over time. And I don't mean to deny the real things we should be worried about and we should be working on, but I think that it's important for people who care about nature to not only recognize the urgency and the reasons to be concerned, I think it's also important to take some time and really focus on how marvelous nature is and how good nature is at dealing with change. And personally, 
I find that a lot more motivating. And on top of that, this notion that we get to choose our future, it's not too late, is further motivating because it means we have agency here. So we get to make these decisions and we can shape the world as we wish to see it. You're making me think of, I'm going to give you two little stories about things I've done to either rescue or the opposite in the last week. Okay, we had a little, we live up in a very rural area in the mountains and we had sort of had this infestation of pack rat. Well, we thought it was one pack rat. So we caught the little devil and he was wreaking havoc around our deck area and they are incredible i will say this and so we did the live trap and then we took him 25 miles away some of the vegetation that he had stuffed under our deck and then we just left him off there and thought he'd be okay we came back we realized there must be a second pack rat because there was more vegetation disturbed we caught that one and i thought about driving him 25 miles down to where we released the other one but i didn't i released him in a completely different place about 15 miles away and i just thought you know maybe that was an offspring and maybe it really reduces his chance for survival i'm going to say that was the opposite of demographic rescue maybe <laughs> no it was actually you were acting as an agent of you know at least moving things around you don't know what's there right so right. if there's a healthy population of this species there already it probably won't make much difference um, and what you were probably doing, so there's two different things that can happen when you move a species from one location to another like that. Well, actually, at least three. One, if it's not found there, you can be introducing it. And that tends to happen at larger distances than what you're talking about, but that's possible. Um, two, you could be um, connecting those populations demographically, moving that individual into the other population, bolstering their population. And three, a lot of species have uh, local adaptations where, uh, you know, an individual found in this location is slightly different from an individual found in this location because of evolution in the past. And sometimes those distances are actually very short. Like the salmon that I write about in one of the chapters, you know, you can walk a few hundred yards and find salmon populations that are um, evolutionarily distinct from each other. So you may have also been transporting some genetic diversity. Uh, from your location to that other location. Um, uh, obviously, I don't know the details of the species, but any one of those three things could be happening in that system. And that was Michael Meta Webster, his book, The Rescue Effect. Thanks for tuning in to Cool Science Radio here on KPCW Park City.